Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You may be seated. And now if you'll join me as we uh, come to the Lord and ask his blessing on the, the preaching of his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would be with me, that every word that would come from my mouth would be faithful and true because it would be simply what your word would teach us this morning that it would be what your word says and not any of my opinions. I pray that you would be glorified in the words of my mouth, that you would be honored in the praise that you would create even in all of us who hear this morning, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open up each and every heart here this morning to receive from the abundance of your grace that comes to them through the proclamation of your word. I pray that you would work repentance and faith, that you would give great joy in the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that he would be honored and exalted in our hearts and in our lives and that you would do all of this work by the power of your spirit. We confess that it is infinitely beyond us in our own fleshly power and strength. We pray all of this for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Well, human beings are creatures who seek meaning in life. In, in different ways, we all go through a variety of experiences, and many of those experiences are difficult. I know that if I was to speak to each one of you this morning, I would find that many, if not all of you, are going through hard times in different ways. I know for some of you that would be great trials. For some of you that might be 
smaller difficulties and smaller trials. And, you know, the Lord knows all of those. Um, even the, the smallest of trials that we go through is not so small as to be beyond the Lord's care and beyond his notice. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't require us to kind of go through a, uh, a competition of, of who's going through the greatest trial. He cares and he knows uh, even in the smallest of difficulties that we face as God's people. But when we're living our lives, when we are going through difficulties, and, and perhaps maybe even when we're not, uh, do you find that you, you often wonder, what does it all mean? Why is my life turning out the way it has? If you've lived for any number of years, you've gone through disappointments. You've gone through twists and turns where things didn't turn out the way that you had hoped, and uh, there were difficulties that were unexpected, often lasting for years, even decades. And I'm sure that you've, you've cried out to the Lord and you've asked Him, what does it all mean? You know, why, Lord? Why has this happened to me? That's how God made us. He made us to try to make sense of the world. He made us to try to understand. And He's given us His Word as a light for our path to be able to understand. And even when we look out at the people of the world, right, even those who don't know Christ, you see how often they're seeking purpose and meaning. You know, even the, the wealthiest of people in the world, the most powerful of people, they desire for their life to have some sort of significance and, and meaning, and they want to know why they're here, even if they have no thoughts of God at all. The, the, the wealthiest athletes and musicians and actors and actresses, you notice how often it is that what really seems to give their life purpose is some sort of mission outside of their, their job, right? Whether it's some sort of charity help somewhere in the world. Uh, they're seeking meaning. They're seeking purpose, even though they're seeking it outside of the Lord. In our text this morning, we have uh, such a wonderful and powerful way to help us as we navigate all the difficulties of life, as we face uh, many trials and twists and turns of fate, and we wonder what it all means. Well, we have set before us a text that I hope by the end of this sermon will give you hope, that it will strengthen you to find meaning for your life in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the gospel. In fact, what I would say is the, the main point of this text is that we can find and we do find gospel hope in the Lord Jesus Christ even in the midst of dark and difficult circumstances that are beyond our ability to understand. That really is the focus of this text, is that we can find gospel joy in the midst of dark and uncertain circumstances, difficult times that are beyond our ability to grasp and to fully make sense of. And I want to look at this text under three headings with you this morning. The first one is that we see and we are given the grace from the Lord to wait on Him even when we don't understand what He's doing in our lives, even when we struggle to find meaning in what has happened to us as God's people. Secondly, 
This text gives us the grace to focus our hearts and to focus our lives on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the fact that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ should change every single aspect of our lives and that that's ultimately our only hope in the midst of difficult and dark times. And finally, our text gives us the grace to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ as we wait upon him, as we wait in hope for his return. So we have the grace to wait on Jesus Christ, to focus our hearts and lives on him, and then to rest as we wait in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, there are a few things about this text that we need to spend some time on, some aspects that might uh, be a little bit mysterious, as often the book of Revelation can be. I find that Christians are often very intimidated by the book of Revelation. They find that it is a book that almost seems impossible to understand. It seems like it's just these dark riddles that are too difficult. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way. You've ever felt like, I, I, maybe I should just leave that to the experts. Maybe I should just um, maybe come to that someday when I'm going to understand it. And, and maybe you find yourself sort of neglecting the book of Revelation. I think, sadly, the way some Christians talk about the book of Revelation has actually made that even worse. Right? It's made it seem as if it is just a, a dark riddle and puzzle that only the experts can understand that only those who have given some sort of, been given some sort of secret knowledge and wisdom from God can peer into those dark secrets. And then they will be equipped to look around them in the world and they'll, they'll be able to say, oh, that, that was prophesied in the book of Revelation. Okay, I understand that. If you had my knowledge, you would see that. Have you ever felt that way about Revelation, that it's just too dark and difficult? Well, I, I obviously can't, take you through the whole book of Revelation this morning, but I think at least in this one text, I hope that you come away seeing a little bit of how that's not the case. Revelation is a word, an English word, that comes from the first word in this book, which in Greek is apocalypse. And apocalypse means an opening up, a clarifying. It means taking something that was dark and mysterious and making it plain. So I find it ironic that Christians so often come to Revelation and they read it almost exactly in the opposite way, as if it's a darkening, as if it's a hiding, as if it's a, a concealing of truth. And that is not at all what God intended. It is an apocalypse. It is a, a revealing, an opening up, a making plain of that which is mysterious. In fact, it's a making plain of that which we could, could not possibly have understood or grasped unless God had shown it to us. Revelation is a series of visions, and they come to John one after the other. You have this language throughout the book of Revelation, Revelation where John says, and then I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision. And it is much like if we were in an art gallery and we were passing along 
at different paintings. And then I saw this painting. And then I moved on. And then I saw this one. And, and so on, until we've seen all of the paintings. Well, John is being shown visions by God. And then I see this vision. And then I saw that vision. All the way to the end of the book. And each time he writes down the vision. And he writes it down in a letter <clears throat> which he sends to the church. So that God's people will be equipped to make sense of life in this world. So that God's people will know how to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him in a world that is full of temptation, that is full of suffering, that is full of persecution and hostility towards the church, in a world that is full of all sorts of of satanic attacks, in fact. That's really what the, the book of Revelation is about, showing us as God's people how to endure the many ways in which Satan attacks God's people, whether that be through temptations, uh, worldliness, persecution, suffering, any of those things. And, and each one of those visions has something very important to show us about how to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of all of that. And it's no different for our text this morning. This is one particular vision amidst all of those that is for our good and it is a vision to give us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a vision about an angel who is coming down from heaven and he has a little scroll in his hand. And so first of all, we need to know who this angel is and then we want to know what is this scroll? What's written in this scroll and what is that going to teach us? Now you might think, okay, an angel, that's fairly straightforward. But in this instance in the book of Revelation, it's not as straightforward as it might seem from that English word. Who is this angel? Well, when we start to read the descriptions of him, he is no ordinary angel, right? He is coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. In the Old Testament, when God comes in judgment, when he appears before people, God comes wrapped in a dark cloud. This angel has a rainbow over his head. It's taking us back to the prophet Ezekiel, which he looks up into heaven and he sees a vision of the throne of God. And what does he see? He sees it on top of a rainbow. This angel, his face shines like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Well, in Revelation chapter 1, we read almost an identical description of the Lord Jesus Christ, his feet like blinding, burnished bronze, his face shining like the sun. So we're starting to, to see some very interesting things about this angel here. And I would suggest to you, and, and even more strongly than that, because it's not, uh, not merely a, 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 a suggestion or even a, a supposition on my part, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not any normal angel. Right? If you're not persuaded of that, keep reading. Right? He has this little scroll open in his hand. He sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Why? Because he is sovereign over all of creation. That's a way of, of signifying that the entire created order belongs to him. He stands over it all, sovereign and majestic. He calls out with a loud voice like a lion. Roaring, right? The lion 
of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the seven thunders sound. Now, why would you call Jesus an angel? You might be asking yourself. Well, the word angel simply means messenger. And angel can be applied in any number of ways. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches. And for each one of those churches, John is told to write something down and send it to the angel of the church. That angel is probably the pastor of each of those churches. It would be very strange in a book where an angel is telling John to write everything down for him to write it down and then send his letter to angels. Right? What would that even mean? The angels don't need John to write anything down and give it to them. Right? The angels are the ones that are being used by God to give the revelation to John for him to send to the churches. And so John writes it down and he sends it to the messenger for each of the seven churches. And that messenger is the pastor of those churches. So in Revelation chapter 10, we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the supreme angel of God. He's the supreme messenger of God because he brings the final definitive word of the gospel for the world. Jesus is not a spiritual being who's unphysical. He's not like the angels in that sense. He's like the angels in the sense of being a messenger from God, the Father. And he brings this message. It's this little scroll. If you, if you find a scroll in the book of Revelation, that's very significant because that's teaching you something about the plan of God for the ages. There was already a much larger scroll throughout chapters 5 through 8, and that scroll had, um, had seven seals on it. And when one seal is opened on that scroll, something is shown to the church about life in this age. It is teaching them something about uh, suffering or trials or persecution or how God is going to sustain his people in the midst of all of that. You open a scroll and you learn that. You, you open the next scroll and you learn something new. And all seven scrolls are open, uh, seals are opened. And then you can read this scroll and John writes it down. And then he sends it to the churches so that they can live their lives as God's people in this age. So now we encounter a little scroll. And we'd ask ourselves the question, what is written on this scroll? What is there here that I need to know as a Christian to live my life? Well, in verse 4, after Jesus has, has called out with this loud voice like a lion roaring, the seven thunders sound, and John is about to write. That would be uh, his normal practice in the book of Revelation. When God shows him something, or when he hears something from God, he writes it down for us. This is something that is apparently already written down on this little scroll, and now John needs to write it down so that we can know what it says. But then something very strange happens here. After the seven thunders sound and John's about to write, he hears a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Right Now that, is, that command is both to Jesus and to John in the sense that Jesus is to seal up what is on that scroll. And John is not to write it down. Very interesting in the book of Revelation because this is the first and the only time in the whole book that we have something like this happen. 
every other time, John has shown something or he's told something, and he's then told to write it down. He then writes it down so that we can know it as God's people. But here, the one time he is told not to write it down. Well, we can see that the seven thunders are important. The, the number seven is one of the most important numbers in the whole Bible, and it's key in the book of Revelation. There are seven trumpets, there are seven bowls, there are seven seals, there are seven histories of God's people, there are uh, seven um, seals on the, the scroll, there, there's seven everywhere. Right? And then we encounter these seven thunders, and we think, what, what does this mean? This has to be the, the key here of this whole text figuring out what the seven thunders mean. Well, we can get a general sense for this. Thunder, right? That's judgment. When God comes wrapped in a cloud, the earth quakes, and there is thunder and there's lightning. Mount Sinai, when God came down upon Mount Sinai, the earth quaked, and there was lightning and there was thunder. Right? That's a way of indicating that God is coming in his majesty, in his power, even coming in judgment on the world. And as people who desire to make sense of our lives, we want to know, well, then what is this? What, what judgment might we face in this world? And then we're, we're told here that John is to seal it up, uh, that he's not to write it down. Why would that be? What do these seven thunders mean? How can we figure it out? Well, you could go and you could open up a, a commentary on the Bible. You could read a New Testament commentator on the book of Revelation and you could try to figure it out, or you could read a hundred, and you could try to figure it out. And I can say confidently this morning that each and every one of them, if they told you what these seven thunders mean, would be wrong. And if you hear that, you might think, wow, we have the most arrogant preacher who has ever come to this pulpit. He's figured this out, and no one else has ever figured this out. Well, no, that's not the case. I don't know what they mean either. And that might also sound like a strange thing to say for a preacher. I don't know what the text means. Did he not do his work? Did he not prepare for this sermon? Well, no. I don't know what they mean, and no one else knows what they mean because you can't know what the seven thunders mean. It's impossible. But that is the actual point. It's impossible to know exactly what these seven thunders mean. Why would God reveal something to us and yet hide the meaning from us? Well, the meaning is found in that very fact. And this is our, our first point. The, the meaning is found in that very fact because there is so much that is going on in the plan of God and in this world that is beyond our grasp that is beyond our ability to fully plumb the depths of. There is so much that is happening in each and every one of your lives, and there's so much that's happening in our cities, in our nation, in our world, across time, that is beyond us, and that will always be beyond us. Now, Revelation is a wonderful book because it shows us, it opens up so much truth to us about what God is doing in this world. And yet, it is always the case that despite all of these wonderful truths that God does show us, there is so much more that he is doing that is beyond us, that's beyond our ability to grasp. 
It will always be that way. And that can be very difficult as God's people. That can be very difficult for us because we want to know what it all means. And yet, this teaches us that God still has it firmly under control. It's written down on the scroll. There's no doubt about the future. There's no doubt about what God is doing in our lives. He never makes a mistake. He has each and every one of your lives firmly in his hand. And you can be confident of that. Absolutely confident. Even when you don't understand. Even when you find that it is so difficult and dark and and troubling even. And you want to know what it means, but you can't. You can't figure it out. At that point, each and every one of us as God's people has to wait upon the Lord. We have to get to that point where we can trust him enough to walk in faith even though we don't understand. I wonder if you ever have felt that way where you think, I could trust the Lord if I could just make sense of this trial that's happening in my life. If it made sense, if I understood why, then I could trust the Lord. Think how often the psalmists cry out to God and they say, why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? They don't understand. Just as as we often don't understand what God is doing in our lives, and yet we know that he is good. We know that if we are in Christ, we are in the palm of his hand, that he is holding us in his love, that he's watching over us, that every single thing that is happening to us is firmly in his grasp. I think of what Job says when he's going through all of his trials and he eventually comes to the point where he says, I've understood merely the outskirts of your ways. He confesses that to God. If you remember Job, he never gets to the point in his life where he gets the answer that he desires from God. Why? Why did this happen to me? Why do all these trials come upon me? He wants an answer. And at the end of the book, he still hasn't gotten an answer. What he has got from the Lord is a very powerful reminder that the Lord is God that the Lord is sovereign, that the Lord is powerful, that the Lord is good, that the Lord is loving and kind to his people. And that is enough for Job. And that must be enough for us because, brothers and sisters, you're not going to be able to understand every single trial that you face. You're not going to be able to grasp the reasons why, other than knowing that God is working all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, when we know that, when we're we're given the grace here to to wait upon the Lord, our text also then points us to the return of Christ, gives us the, the strength and the grace to focus our hearts and our lives on the return of Jesus Christ. There is no hope apart from that. There is no hope when we're facing trials, ultimately, right? Because we don't know how long we have in this life. We don't know how our trials are going to turn out. If we place our hope on things turning, on things changing for us in an earthly sense, then we have no lasting hope. We have no strong hope in the Lord. But if we place our hope on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, on what will happen in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, verse 7, when the mystery of God would be fulfilled, then we have hope. 
we have an abiding hope. We have a lasting hope. That this is only for a time. That these trials and these struggles, they won't last forever. I think about how we comfort small children. Maybe some of you who are kids, you know, or can at least remember this when you were a little bit younger. Maybe you got scared in the night. Maybe there's a, a, a loud thunderstorm, something like that. Uh, and you're scared and you come running into mom and dad's room and you, you want comfort, right? And, and you find that your parents bring you that comfort. Well, it's much like that for us as God's people. That we know that the Lord is near to us. That he is near in two ways. He's near in the sense that he's always near to those who cry out to him. That cry out to him in their times of of struggle and trial. He's near to us. Just think what we say to our children in those times. We say, don't worry. I'm right here. I'm next door. You have nothing to worry about. I'm with you. Nothing can harm you. I will take care of you. I will protect you. We say that to our kids, and that calms them, doesn't it? Well, these words from Christ are the same. I am near. I am there in the midst of your darkest trial. I'm with you. I love you. I will not forsake you. But he's also near in another sense. And this is something else we might say to our kids. We might say, you know, I'm here. But another thing is that this is not going to last forever. Just go back to bed, go to sleep, and when you wake up, it'll all be over. It'll be daylight, the storm will have passed. Just go back to bed. It'll just be a moment. Go to sleep and you'll wake up and it'll all be over. And that's what Christ says to us as well. The mystery of God will soon be fulfilled. Jesus is coming back soon. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that moment, that glorious moment, we'll see him face to face. And we will forget all of our trials. We will forget all of the difficulties. All of those times when we didn't understand what God was doing in our life. They will, they will be forgotten. In fact, we'll see them for what they really were. The perfect plan of God written on this little scroll that we couldn't even read, but we know that it was all written down for us. We'll see that in all of its glory. We will see Christ, and we will be able to look in his face, and his love will overwhelm us with this goodness that will wash away all of the pain, all of the sadness, all of the difficulties of life in this fallen world. Well, our third and final gospel truth in this text is that Christ gives us grace to rest as we wait on him, as we wait for his return. In verse 8, this voice that had been speaking from heaven says to John, go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel standing on the sea and on the land. And so he goes and he tells the angel to give it to him. And then he's told, the angel tells him, Jesus Christ tells him, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. This is another uh, vision from the prophet Ezekiel that is, uh, that is taken and in a new way is made use of in the book of Revelation. 
And it means uh, much the same thing as it did for the prophet Ezekiel. There's this message that Ezekiel was to proclaim to the world. But before he was ready to proclaim that message, he had to take that message, take that scroll, and swallow it and eat it. Um, it had to, to go deep within him. He had to have this message that he was to proclaim internalized within him before he would be ready to proclaim it to the world. And that's the same for John. This message has to be deep within him, in his bones, so that he can then go and proclaim this message with boldness and with power, that he must prophesy, as verse 11 says, to many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Why is this message, why is this scroll that he is to eat both bitter and sweet. It will make his stomach bitter, but in his mouth it will be sweet as honey. The reason for that is that the gospel has two sides to it. The gospel has a sweet and a bitter side to it. The gospel is the sweetest word that could ever be heard by those who have repented of their sin who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sweetest message imaginable. It is the sweetest word that could ever be heard because it is the good news of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to wash away your sin, every single one of them, to wash it away completely, that we would stand before God in His perfect righteousness, that we would stand uncondemned, that we would stand with confidence before God. It is the sweetest message imaginable. And it's even sweeter than that because not only has Christ paid the price for our sins, not only has he made us right with God if we are in him, but he promises, as we see in this text, to be with us in the darkest of times, to be with us and to sustain us until the very end. That's the sweetest message imaginable. And yet for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who have not repented of their sin, who have not trusted in him, this is the most bitter word that could ever be heard because judgment is coming. The day is coming when the seventh trumpet will sound, when the mystery of God will be fulfilled and the time of God's patience will come to an end. And that is a, a strong warning it's even the warning that John has to take out to the world. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because the day of judgment is coming. This is the time of God's patience. But the, God, the time of God's patience will not last forever. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance so often, we treat God's patience as a reason to procrastinate, don't we? To not deal with our sin. For those who don't know Christ, maybe they've heard the gospel. Maybe that's you today. I don't know. Maybe one of you sitting here today has heard the gospel so frequently and yet has not repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, I know God is good. I want to be saved. But not today. I'll repent tomorrow. I'll repent next week. I'll deal with my sin later. But God's patience is meant to lead us, brothers and sisters, to repentance. Today's the day. 
God's patience is an aspect of the sweetness of the gospel, that he is patient with sinners like you and me. And even, brothers and sisters, for those of you who are trusting in Christ, let God's patience lead you to repentance. Focus your hearts on the return of Christ and don't wait until tomorrow to deal with your sin and to repent of your sin. This message is sweet. It is sweetness and light for those who are in Christ, for those of us who have trusted in him. But it is a bitter word for the world that is dying and perishing outside of Christ. But we have hope. We have grace from the Lord Jesus Christ to rest. We are in him. We can rest even when we don't fully grasp what's happening in our lives. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. As I bring this to a close, I think there really could be no better place to go than Romans chapter 8. And to think about what the Apostle Paul says as he closes that chapter, he thinks about the grace of God that has come to us in Christ, and he asks that wonderful question in Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has given you the greatest gift imaginable, which he has in Christ, he has given you the forgiveness of sins. He has given you a perfect righteousness as you are clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God has given you that gift, the greatest gift conceivable, do you think he will ever withhold any lesser gift from you in this life? Do you think when you are facing the darkest hour of trial that God will withhold from you the grace to sustain you? You may not understand what he's doing in your life in that moment, but you can know with absolute certainty, and that's the point of Paul's questions, that he will never withhold those gifts from you. He will never withhold the grace to sustain you. He will never withhold his tender heart towards you in that moment. He's proven it, hasn't he? By sending the Lord to die on the cross for you and for me. Let's pray. A great God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We are in awe of your majesty and your wisdom and your power. And we are so thankful that you have given us a clear word, a word of hope, even in the midst of our darkest and most difficult times. I pray that you would sustain each and every one of us here this morning as we face various trials in this life. I pray that you would give us hope, that you would fix our hearts on Christ, on his goodness and his love for us, and on his return. And I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would sustain us until the last day, full of hope and full of strength and grace to rest and to wait until that very day. And I pray this in his most precious name. Amen.